Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. Victoria, a queen in a passionate marriage with Prince Albert. Yet behind closed doors, their domestic life was a battlefield. Victoria and Albert had terrible rows. Think of the worst row you've ever had with a partner and then magnify it. But it wasn't the only stormy relationship in Victoria's life. She had nine children who didn't always do what she wanted. He had tantrums, he threw his book on the floor, he pulled his brother's hair, he screamed, he threw his pencil, he was rude. I mean, he was really a sort of nightmare of a schoolboy. In this series, we will explore the turmoil and drama for Queen Victoria's children as they grew up struggling with domineering parents. She expected them to be beaten and to be made to understand how they should behave. Victoria and Albert's dream of blissful domesticity was vital to the values of the age and to rescuing the monarchy from the threat of revolution. But it came at a huge personal cost. She wanted to control the children's lives. Somebody said the Queen is absolutely insane when it comes to asserting her own maternal authority. Victoria and Albert wanted their children to strengthen and redefine royalty for generations to come. But their plan for the family led to a 60-year war between the children and their mother. Christmas, Windsor, 1860. Queen Victoria, her beloved husband Albert, and their nine children gathered round. They exchanged presents. Family games and billiards were played. One visitor remembered. It was royalty putting aside its state and becoming in words, acts and deeds one of ourselves. I have never seen more real happiness than the scene of the mother and all her children. It was a happy family image that Victoria and Albert were determined to make popular. They knew they had to find a fresh way of relating to their subjects. The danger of revolution loomed large. Many other European monarchies were threatened the royal couple needed to save the British monarchy by connecting with a middle class expanding with wealth and empire. Their children were key to this plan. Albert came up with this idea that the royal family should be presented as respectable and as a close-knit loving family. So from very, very early on you have uh, a very strong image of a close-knit, almost middle-class family. It's as if Albert and Victoria are trying to reach out to their middle-class uh, subjects and say, look, we are like you, trust us. But behind the facade of this model family was a hornet's nest of hostilities. The royal household was not this chocolate box image of, of gorgeousness where everybody loved each other. It was a place of simmering tensions, huge resentments, uh, extraordinary conniving. A family life riddled with conflict was perhaps inevitable given the couple's own experiences. Prince Albert was born near Coburg, Germany, the son of a duke. It's very hard in those days to find suitably upmarket candidates to marry someone like Victoria. You know, they had to be without 
you know, stain on their character. They had to have an absolutely exemplary background, which Albert fitted because he was very moral and very upright and very dutiful, and there was not a stain on his character. Victoria was probably the best catch in Europe at the time. I mean, queen of a huge and growing empire. She was an extraordinary catch from a modest little prince like Albert, from this rather obscure duchy. In 1839, the handsome German prince arrived at Windsor Castle for an arranged meeting with his first cousin, the Queen. From the start, their mutual passion was obsessive. Oh, how I love him. How intensely, how tenderly, how ardently. Your image fills my whole soul. Even in my dreams, I never imagined that I should find so much love on Earth. It wasn't love at first sight, the relationship between Queen Victoria and Albert, but it was pretty near to it. The second time that they met, Queen Victoria rushed back and said that she had seen Albert again, and he is beautiful. I mean, she was full of admiration for him. And it was really a love match, I think, or the useful coincidence of something that was politically useful. But Albert was daunted by his role as a subject to his feisty queen. My future lot is high and brilliant, but also plentifully strewn with thorns. The young couple married the following year. They faced a public with both a distrust of the monarchy and an intense dislike for Albert, who was seen as a humorless German intellectual. One of the strange things was that in Victorian England there were all sorts of rather obscene lampoons, one of which about the wedding night went something like this, that um, Albert entered by Bushy, he uh, advanced through Maidenhead, penetrated Virginia water and left stains behind. Um, not the sort of thing that you'd expect in, uh, in Victorian England, but it was a reflection, I think, of the antipathy that Albert had created. Here he was, this priggish, pompous foreigner who'd arrived in order to exploit the wealth and the dignity of Britain by marrying the Queen. Victoria and Albert felt the pressures of being anything but an ordinary couple. They disagreed over the length of their honeymoon, Victoria not wanting to be away from Buckingham Palace and her royal duties. Our position is very different from any other married couple. You forget, my dearest love, that I am the sovereign and that business can stop and wait for nothing. Although besotted with Albert, Victoria did not concede any political power to him. He complained. I am only the husband and not the master in my house. And the power play was only just beginning. I think she was very stroppy and argumentative. And there's a funny comment Albert made not long after he was married to her in 1840. He wrote home to his brother and he said, well, Victoria's shaping up very well. She's only had two tantrums recently. And his attitude was her, was sort of knocking her into line, making her calm down and be the dutiful, meek little wife. Within weeks of their marriage, Victoria would give them both a project to work on. She was pregnant. The royal couple's own experiences of family life had not been happy. Albert's early years in Germany were overshadowed by the dramatic collapse of his parents' marriage. Well, he comes from a totally dysfunctional family and um, he had these traumas from childhood onwards because his father more or less broke up the family. He was um, cheating on his wife and um, discarded her when she got too old. I mean, his father was um, having affairs with underage girls and when his own wife was over 21, he just... Um, you know, got rid of her. And of course, to have such a father is pretty awful. And Albert 
wanted to love him, respect him, but at the same time resented him for all this that had happened. So, of course, Albert wanted to be completely different. He rebelled against the bad behavior. He wanted to be the model um, son and later father. Victoria, too, had much to react against. She had grown up secluded at Kensington Palace under the control of her domineering mother, the Duchess of Kent. I had led a very unhappy life as a child, had no scope for my very violent feelings of affection, and did not know what a happy domestic life was. She goes through a period of, of referring to her mother as the Duchess, which would be rather like us calling our mothers Mrs Smith. I mean, so, so estranged. She tells Melbourne in 1838 that she doesn't think Mama has ever loved her. So she's beginning to become a mother herself just at the time when her feelings about her mother are still very, very, very frosty. With their own sad childhood still fresh in their minds, the couple were resolved to create a happy family of their own, a model for the dynasty and the nation. They're determined, like all conscientious parents, that they're going to make it better this time. They're, in a sense, going to cure or heal their own childhoods by doing it right with their own children. And, it, you know, everybody, lots of us have been there. It's, it's a very, very common impulse to think that you can put right in the next generation what went wrong in your, in your own family life. The first child, called Victoria, but known as Vicky, was born in 1840. The young queen, busy with royal duties, only saw her new daughter twice a day. She did, however, make time to spend with Albert. Queen Victoria was infatuated with Albert on a, on a physical plane. She was excited by his good looks. She um, adored watching him shave and put on his stockings and talked about the, the excitement of seeing nothing, that there was nothing underneath them. He was so cold, dear angel, being in grande tenue with tight white casimir pantaloons, nothing under them and high boots. The unfortunate byproduct of this infatuation was, of course, children. She didn't, they didn't know anything about um, contraception, and the children arrived with monotonous regularity. Within a year of Vicky's birth, Albert Edward, known as Bertie, was born. Our little boy is a wonderfully strong and large child. I hope and pray he may be like his dearest papa. Vicky is not at all pleased with her brother. Over the next five years, another three children appeared. Alice, Alfred and Helena. She didn't like babies. She always said they were horrible, ugly little things and they were not even acceptable to look at or hold till they were about six months old. Queen Victoria later grumbled. An ugly baby is a very nasty object. The prettiest are frightful when undressed. As long as they have their big body and little limbs and that terrible frog-like action. Victoria not only found her own babies repulsive, she also refused to breastfeed them, having a... Totally insurmountable disgust for the process. She installed a wet nurse in Buckingham Palace. I think the idea of giving over her body uh, for another six months, for another 12 months, to these frog-like people is absolutely disgusting to her. I think the central relationship for her is always the one with Albert. Um, we know that they enjoyed a very vigorous sex life. And I think she had that feeling that her breasts were, it sent, were, were for Alberts, they weren't for the children. Her breasts were sexual rather than maternal. The couple's vigorous sex life brought more children. Louise, Arthur, Leopold and Beatrice, making nine born over 17 years. 
Having a large family wasn't just about purging the couple's unhappy past. For the survival of the monarchy, Victoria and Albert knew it was vital to distance themselves from the louche Hanoverians, as epitomized by Victoria's notorious uncle, George IV. George IV, the Prince Regent, had been famous for being fat, unfaithful, and spending a very great deal of money, and his other brothers were no better. And in fact, one of them, Cumberland, uh, was uh, famously involved in all sorts of accusations that he'd murdered his valet. So, uh, really, the royal family before Victoria uh, had been extremely publicly unpopular. So, Albert came up with this idea that the royal family should be presented as respectable uh, and as a close-knit, loving family. Victoria and Albert needed to create a fresh image that would be approved of by their most important audience, the expanding middle class. Family values were key to this new bourgeois ideal, as the artist Landseer understood. Landseer painted a, a, a portrait of Victoria and Albert and the Princess Royal in 1841, and it's called Windsor Castle in Modern Times. And that title is really important because it's, it's signaling very clearly that there's been a change, that this is about um, a modern version of the monarchy. I think what's the most interesting aspect of that painting is the way that the couple, Victoria and Albert uh, th themselves, are shown. She holds a posy of flowers in her hands, so it clearly demarcates that she represents femininity, gentleness, um, purity. I think Landseer's painting shows us the way in which the royal family were using images of the family, intimacy, femininity, in order to support and promote a new image of the monarchy. They say no sovereign was ever more loved than I am, I am bold enough to say, and this is because of our domestic home and the good example it presents. One place more than any other gave them a stage on which to play out their domestic ideal. Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Queen Victoria enthused. We are more and more delighted with this lovely spot. The combination of sea, trees, the purest air, make it a perfect paradise. During these holidays, the children absorbed some of the most cherished values of the middle classes on their vast royal estate. Enjoying modest pleasures, they hunted butterflies and played on Osborne's beach. They learned to be self-sufficient in a specially built Swiss cottage where they were taught to cook and where Albert helped them grow fruit and vegetables. He and Queen Victoria were very keen that they should learn real skills. All the princesses could cook and bake beautifully, which astounded people in later life. They'd just assumed they would have always had cooks. They would never have had to do this kind of, you know, servant's work themselves. They all learned to tend gardens, to grow vegetables and flowers. They learned about the natural world. They learned all sorts of really important life lessons as well. This was, I think, a way of trying to genuinely engage with the business of everyday life and acquire skills, domestic skills. I mean, even if they weren't really going to use them very much in later life, Albert certainly thought it was important that those children knew what to do in a kitchen, you know, knew how to grow a carrot, these sort of things, they were important to him. Celebrations of the family ideal were created throughout the house and gardens at Osborne. Victoria and Albert's initials are intertwined. The children, cherub-like, adorn furniture as characters in a new kind of royal drama. 
Albert, the patriarch, was crucial to the design of this utopia. It was meant to be a stark contrast to society life in London. Albert hated the loose morals of lavish dinners, cards and parties. He was described at a London ball as looking like a cowed and kept pet, frightened to sit, frightened to stand. Despite cultivating an ordinary domestic image, the royal family was in a class of its own, living in splendid isolation. Really, when one contemplates the life of the royal family in the Victorian era, it's, it's more and more bizarre. Bertie, for example, could only have an even number of asparagus stalks on his plate because an odd number was bring him bad luck. Princess Louise thought that um, the only way you could achieve good health was to boil your knees in whiskey every evening. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. They lived in this strange, regal bubble in which the only conversation was something that they themselves created. So they couldn't really relate to other people. Other people had to relate to them. Morally upright in the extreme, Albert was everything his amoral father hadn't been. He became emblematic of a new kind of fatherhood, totally loyal to his wife with a hands-on approach to his children. Albert adored the eldest, Vicky. Lady Littleton remembered him playing with his daughter. Albert tossed and romped with her, making her laugh and crow and kick heartily. The Queen, however, didn't join in, saying, He is so kind to them and romps with them so delightfully and manages them so beautifully and firmly. Albert is not an absent aristocratic dad wandering over the grouse moor and seeing his children, you know, once a year uh, and not even remembering their names. Prince Albert is this new kind of man, this new kind of bourgeois father who gets most of his pleasure and definition from what goes on at home, who's intimately involved in the nursery, who comes home after a hard day at the office, or in the case of Prince Albert, hard day signing papers, and plays and romps with the children. Albert, considering himself an expert on human behaviour, was fascinated by the progress of his brood. There is certainly a great charm as well as interest in watching the development of feelings and faculties in a little child. Albert wasn't just curious about the children. He organized a fastidious plan for molding his offspring into role models for the nation and for Europe. Prince Albert observed, Upon the good education of princes, and especially those who are destined to govern, the welfare of the world in these days greatly depends. Prince Albert himself was the product of an efficient German education. He developed a kind of educational program which his advisor, Baron Stockmar, said any, anybody who, who carried this out would, would develop brain fever immediately, that, that, that it was too much for them to have to undergo. Albert's plan for the children began when they were infants. The chief objects here are their physical development, the actual rearing up, the training to obedience. The young Alice received a real punishment by whipping for telling a lie. She wasn't the only one subject to Albert's harsh discipline. When Vicky misbehaved, uh, he was perfectly prepared to have her hands tied behind her back and she was whipped and, and Bertie was whipped. And when uh, Louise played the piano, for example, um, and she hit a wrong note, Albert would, would hit her fingers, um, and she hit quite a lot of wrong notes. So Albert was not, by any means, a, 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 an enlightened modern father, but he wasn't an ogre either. Mm -hmm. 
As part of his plan, Albert trained the children relentlessly in social graces. They practiced at what he called circling, to enter a room and make one's way around it, speaking to each of the assembled company in turn. Victoria and Albert's children were educated at their station in life. I mean, obviously only one of them was going to uh, accede to the throne, but they had to all take part, as it were, in royal life. So they had to learn how to make conversation, how to circulate at levees and parties, all the sort of politesses that were necessary for um, a royal education, and also things like languages. I mean, after all, they knew they were going to meet other royal households, so the education in language is very important too. It was a strict regime. Fortunately, the eldest child, Vicky, was extremely bright. Under Albert's regime, she was first taught French when she was just 18 months old. Albert, right from the time when she's a tiny baby, dotes on Vicky. And, you know, the arrival of more children doesn't shake his absolute devotion. Uh, to Vicky. Vicky's an, almost an infant prodigy. She's speaking Latin, she's speaking French, she's reading Shakespeare, all at a very early age. Lady Littleton, a governess, noted that the princess, before her seventh birthday, might pass for a lady of 17 in whichever of her three languages she chooses to entertain the company. Vicky, like all her siblings, could speak German. In private, Victoria and Albert didn't hide their German roots, but to the public, the Queen was anxious to appear completely British. The Prince and Queen speak English quite as much as German. One of the things that's most surprising about Queen Victoria is how much she preferred Germany to England, although she was Queen of England. Um, she obviously was half German herself, and she married a German, and in private, the family conversation was in German. All of the royal children were commented on as having quite prominent German accents. Even in old age, their friends would comment on them as speaking with a German accent. And there's a lovely letter that remains from one of Princess Louise's ladies-in-waiting, who said that when Prince Arthur came to visit Princess Louise, when they were quite elderly and they were reminiscing about their childhood in the nursery, their accents became incredibly Germanic, and she said it was as if they'd started speaking in a completely different language. They were still speaking English, but their, their accents sounded as though they were Germans newly arrived in England because they went back to their childhood. Victoria and Albert had a clear mission for their children, but the couple's obsessive relationship would threaten to derail it. Victoria was distracted from her role as mother by her intense passion for Albert. Even after the exhaustion of having many children, the Queen was still longing for sensual pleasure. It was clearly a very passionate relationship, physically, too. Queen Victoria hated being pregnant, but she loved the process by which she got pregnant. I think that she may have been a little bit more passionate than him, partly because she was a, a slightly more physical person. You can imagine him in bed, sort of still thinking about uh, guttering and uh, city planning and uh, a statistical conference he might have been wanting to organize sometime in the near future. Besotted with Albert, Victoria idolized him in front of the children. None of you can ever be proud enough of being the child of such a father who has not his equal in the world, so great, so good, so faultless. Victoria worshipped Albert so ardently, she wanted her children to be made in his image. When pregnant with Bertie, the heir to the throne, she remarked, I wonder very much who our little boy will be like. You will understand how fervent my prayers, and I am sure everybody's must be, to see him resemble his angelic, dearest father in every, every respect, both in body and in mind. I think Victoria was more interested in recreating Albert in, in her children than she was in actually seeing what kind of personalities they had themselves. 
she is really heir to a, a much older tradition of thinking of children as blank slates. Uh, in a sense, whatever you put into them, they will become. So if she puts into them the qualities of Albert, the best qualities, his rationality, his good sense, his you know, prudence, you will get, you will get it back. You, you, will ha you will produce lots of little Alberts. Some of them will wear breeches, some of them wear skirts, but basically they're all little Alberts. She treats them as if they were sort of particularly tricky engineering project. Uh, and if you sort of get the mechanics right, you will get a nice sturdy result uh, that will go forth in the image of, of their father. Victoria, like Albert, believed that she could shape her children's character and destiny. But this master plan for saving the monarchy was creating a battlefield. The problem is that Victoria is queen as well as wife. And so when she says sort of cross words to Albert, you know, what is he to do? Is he to sort of say, shut up? Uh, is, he to, <laughs> is he to treat them as though they're royal commands? Um, and Albert is, <laughs> dislikes confrontation, I think. A very reasonable, very rational man. Um, Victoria's not really into rational debate. And so, yes, you get this extraordinary picture of Albert chasing Victoria around from room to room, or sometimes Albert shutting himself in his room and writing her rather pathetic notes, scolding her. It is a very tempestuous marriage, and there are all sorts of conflicts in that marriage that are not fully resolved. Victoria and Albert had terrible rows. I mean, think of the worst row you've ever had with a partner and then magnify it. Uh, it involves lots of slamming doors, people being sort of locking themselves into rooms, lots of shouting. Victoria saying, you know, I never realised I'd be so miserable being married. I mean, absolutely appalling. The first huge row came two years into their marriage. An argument developed over who else should have a say in the children's upbringing. Victoria's closest and most powerful confidant, Baroness Lazen, looked after the nursery. But Albert hated the German governess. It's a position of great power. Now, when Victoria marries Albert, Albert clearly realises that Lazen is the one he's going to have to watch. But he's prepared to, to play a softly, softly game at first. And so when the first baby comes along, Vicky, the Princess Royal, uh, Victoria puts Lazen in charge of the nursery. And Albert's prepared to go along with it for a while. But he clearly, clearly has problems with Lazen. What he does is, I mean, everybody in this psychic drama does very complicated manoeuvrings. They shuffle off the bits they don't like about somebody and put them on to somebody else. So what Albert does is he's, he blames Lazen for everything he doesn't like about Victoria. A heated quarrel broke out over Lazen's treatment of baby Vicky, who was losing weight. Albert wrote to advisor Baron Stockmar. Victoria is too hasty and passionate for me to be able often to speak of my difficulties. She will not hear me out, but flies into a rage and overwhelms me with reproaches of suspiciousness, want of trust, ambition, envy. Queen Victoria herself wrote to Stockmar. There is often an irritability in me which makes me say cross and odious things. Of the family row, Stockmar despaired. The nursery gives me more trouble than the government of a kingdom. Albert, vying for control, described Lazen as the hag, obsessed with the lust of power, a crazy, stupid intriguer who regards herself as a demigod. So, in a sense, they are on a collision course. One of them has got to go. They are two very, very tough Germans. <laughs> you know, and there isn't really room for two tough Germans in the royal nursery. One of them's got to go. And in the end, it's Lazen. Albert was also deeply troubled by Victoria's fierce temper. It was a reminder of a particular royal family legacy, insanity. Albert scolded Victoria, uh, particularly when she lost her temper. 
And there was a whole sort of atmosphere around Victoria losing her temper. I mean, not, it, was not, it wasn't just that she had a filthy temper, which she did, but there was also this sort of fear that, you know, if the Queen loses her temper, this is the sign of the beginning of the madness of George III. Um, they were all very conscious of the idea that Victoria might have inherited this awful Hanoverian malady. Of course she hadn't, she was incredibly sane. Um, but it means that Albert tiptoes around Victoria and the doctor says you mustn't confront her when she has a temper because it'll make it much worse, you must just walk away. Sir James Clark, the royal doctor, advised, Regarding the Queen's mind, unless she is kept quiet, the time will come when she will be in danger. Much depends upon the Prince's management. Increasingly, the Prince Consort treated Victoria as he did his children. He sought control over his Queen and began to remould her character. He made her his own creature. And I think in a way it's rather sad because the one thing I like about Victoria was her wonderful spontaneity, her honesty, and in a way her impetuosity was very charming. Before she married Albert, she loved to stay up late and dance till two in the morning and gossip with her ladies. And he knocked all that out of her. You know, they went to bed at 10. He didn't like staying up late because he'd fall asleep. Um, he didn't like dancing late. And he kind of knocked that wonderful, rounded, vibrant personality down into the kind of mould of this rather dutiful and dowdy little housefrau. Victoria, still obsessional and insecure, would seek Albert's approval after an outburst. How sadly deficient I am and how oversensitive and irritable and how uncontrollable my temper is when annoyed and hurt. Have I improved as I ought? I think she was difficult to read, but I think Albert actually, in his way, was a little bit difficult. He was rather schoolmasterly. He sort of treated Victoria rather like a, an errant child, which, of course, in a sense, she was. You know, he was all for improving her, and he would congratulate her if he felt she had improved. Albert praised her for what he called unbroken success in the hard struggle for self-control. Unlike their father, the children had no escape from their mother's unpredictable and stormy temper. Victoria would consent to her children being beaten. She expected them to be beaten and to be made to understand how they should behave. There's um, famously a comment in one of the ladies-in-waiting's diaries about when Prince Leopold was being naughty as a little boy and Queen Victoria wanted to beat him. And we must remember that Leopold was haemophiliac and Queen Victoria's mother you know, said, you know, please don't beat him. He's just a little boy. He's just being a little boy. You know, how can you bear to hear him crying? And, and she says, oh, once you've had nine, mother, you don't notice it anymore. Unsurprisingly, the children would always be scared of Victoria. The Queen's private secretary once recalled seeing the children flee their mother. We were suddenly nearly carried away by a stampede of royalties, headed by the Duke of Cambridge and brought up by Leopold, going as fast as they could. We thought it was a mad bull, but they cried out, The Queen! The Queen! I imagine the children were fairly, um, certainly in awe of Victoria, as, you know, as, as, as more, I mean, Vicky certainly wasn't. Vicky would give as good as she got. Edward, I think, largely, Bertie largely ignored her. But I'm sure the younger children would have um, been, you know, been pretty much in awe of her, and of course, scared of her tempers. Victoria's harsh parenting frustrated Albert. It is indeed a pity that you find no consolation in the company of your children. The root of the trouble lies in the mistaken notion that the function of a mother is to be always correcting, scolding, ordering them about. She wanted to control the children's lives, absolutely, right down to the last T. Uh, and she went on doing that into their adulthood. It was most extraordinary. Uh, somebody said the Queen is, is absolutely insane when it comes to asserting her own maternal authority. The rows and Victoria's temper were not the only cause of problems for the family. Albert's heavy workload also created tensions. 
Being trapped in the perpetual cycle of pregnancy and childbirth forced Victoria to allow Albert to take on some of her political duties on top of his own ambitious projects. Albert, attempting to be the role model father, struggled to balance work and family. He loved his children when he had time for them, but Albert was on this self-created treadmill of work, work, duty, endlessly wearing himself out on 101 committees doing this, that and the other. The more Albert worked, the more he was away, not just from the children, but his needy wife. You cannot think how much it costs me or how completely upset I am and feel when Albert is away. All the numerous children are as nothing to me when he is away. In the absence of her husband, Victoria came to resent the children. No one recognises more than I do the blessings of having children, but the anxieties and trouble, not to say sorrows, are quite as great as the blessings. Despite the tensions between parents and children behind closed doors, the public face of the plan was a great success. Victoria and Albert were setting the moral tone for a new age, helped by a fledgling technology in the 1850s, photography. This is the first publicly shown photograph of the royal family, taken at Osborne in 1857, of Victoria, Albert, and all nine children. They have their official portraits, they have their family album, but they also become a kind of surrogate family or, or an extra family for the rest of the country because you can collect pictures of the royal household. It was a hugely successful rebranding exercise because for the first time, the monarchy, um, instead of being seen as um, a kind of an abstract uh, form of power that people couldn't relate to, instead, they started to see as a distorted reflection of their own families, of their own lives. The queen became a person. The children became real people. You could understand them, you could sympathise with them, you could gossip about them. The royal couple learned to turn lack of privacy into an advantage. The public lapped up these nuggets of royal intimacy. But behind the media image, the plan for the family was not going as smoothly as it could have been. It soon became apparent that personalities might get in the way of Victoria and Albert's desire for princes and princesses to be made in the image of their father. It was Bertie, the heir to the throne, who presented the biggest problem. From an early age, he refused to conform to Albert's plan for the children's education. Unlike his sister Vicky, he found learning difficult and couldn't concentrate. Bertie was, I think, uh, abnormally backward. He just couldn't focus his mind. Perhaps he really didn't have much of a mind to focus. His tutor, Frederick Gibbs, remarked, I had to do some arithmetic with the Prince of Wales. Immediately he became passionate. The pencil was flung to the end of the room, the stool was kicked away, and he was hardly able to apply himself at all. With him, it was a complete and utter failure, uh, right from a very early age. He acted out. He had tantrums, he threw his book on the floor, he pulled his brother's hair, he screamed, he threw his pencil, he was rude. I mean, he was really a sort of nightmare of a schoolboy. 
Bertie was forever chastised by Victoria for his systematic idleness, laziness, disregard of everything. His ever-anxious parents even consulted a so-called expert, a phrenologist, on the nature of Bertie's brain. The verdict did little to allay their fears. The feeble quality of the brain will render the prince highly excitable. Intellectual organs are only moderately well-developed. The result will be strong self-will, at times, obstinacy. And, and Albert rather sort of typically says, um, I wonder where that Anglo-Saxon brain of his has come from. It certainly wasn't in the German family. It must have come from the Stuarts. <laughs> Other royal offspring also rebelled against their domineering parents. Leopold was known for telling lies. I heard your musical box playing most clearly this afternoon. Victoria complained to her son. Impossible! My musical box never plays! Later in life, Victoria would recognise a fundamental shortcoming in the grand plan. You will find as your children grow up that as a rule children are a bitter disappointment, their greatest object being to do precisely what their parents do not wish and have anxiously tried to prevent. And often when children have been less watched and less taken care of, the better they turn out. This is inexplicable and very annoying. We all as parents would like our children to turn out exactly as we want. And one of the things you have to accept is that children you know, are not little mini-me's and they are not going to do exactly what you want. And you have to accept that and build that into your plan. And if you don't, you're going to be disappointed. Victoria and Albert weren't just hoping to gain public approval through their children. They had aspirations for the dynasty. The royal couple had a vision of a harmonious Europe with an Anglo-German dynasty at its heart. They believed a marriage between daughter Vicky and Fritz, heir to the Prussian throne, could create a pro-English Germany. A meeting was arranged at Balmoral. The meeting at Balmoral, this very erotically charged meeting between Fritz and Vicky in Scotland, was supposed to be um, a, a entirely secret, and immense efforts were made, made to keep it secret. Of course, these efforts were completely in vain, and um, no sooner had the, uh, had the meeting occurred than the news leaked out. The leading papers had people at court who were listening, picking up tidbits for them. When the arrangement was announced in the press, far from celebrating, the British public were horrified. Prussia had refused to unite with Britain in the Crimean War just a few years earlier, intensifying anti-German feelings. One newspaper commented, The supposed political character of the match and the distrust of a policy for Germanizing England have been the real causes of the general disfavor with which the proposed marriage has been regarded. Prince Albert knew he had to spin the marriage as a love match, despite his political ambition for a redrawn Europe. The more it is made clear that our children's marriage is the outcome of mutual attraction rather than of political motives, the more certain it is that any storm which might arise between now and the date of the wedding will pass by. Albert was very aware of how the royal family were written up, how they were perceived. He was quite interested in managing that process. And the marriage of his eldest daughter was, was something that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be asleep about the implications of this. It was, in effect, a kind of political match. Um, unity between England and Germany was something that everybody wanted. Despite being part of the plan, both Victoria and Albert were devastated at losing their totally inexperienced 17-year-old daughter in this child marriage. Days before the wedding, Victoria wrote, After all, it is like taking a lamb to be sacrificed. The pang of parting was great on all sides, and the void which Vicky has left in our household and family circle will stand gaping for many a day. Yet the Queen, characteristically, seemed even more concerned with her own feelings. 
One of the, the stories that I found very poignant and sad is that this is during Albert's lifetime. When her daughter Vicky gets married and she moves to Prussia, she's been married for a few weeks, maybe five or six weeks, and she writes to her mother saying how difficult she's finding life in Prussia. There's always other people around. She's constantly having to go to official functions, and she longs for the times when it's just her and Fritz, her husband, who she loves very much and she wants to be on her own with. And her mother responds to a woman who's just married and says, oh, darling, at last you understand why I always resented you children being around. I only ever wanted it to be me and Papa. Their first child was out of the nest as part of the plan, but there were further strains on the family. Albert found his enormous workload exhausting. By May 1860, he compared himself to a donkey on a treadmill. He too would rather munch thistles in the castle moat. Small are the thanks he gets for his labor. He had a, a tremendously uh, um, toilsome approach to life. Uh, and ultimately, I think you might well say that this, this exhausted him and perhaps killed him. Albert's health was declining. By this point, he was pained with neuralgia and toothache, insomnia and fits of shivering. But Victoria had little room for sympathy. Having given birth to nine children, she thought Albert was weak in his inability to endure pain and found it most trying. The attitude to Albert's illness that you see in Victoria often is, oh, it's man flu, you know. He's putting on a, a big act about how ill he is and we women are sterner stuff. We women have to endure childbirth. So she always felt Albert was rather putting on the agony and didn't take it very seriously. Victoria was a very selfish, egocentric person. She had a place for Albert. She needed Albert. She needed Albert to be a rock. She needed him to be somebody she could rely on. And of course, if he was weak and ailing, she couldn't rely on him. She had to care for him. And I think, obviously, she then got scared. I mean, the possibility of losing Albert seemed to her quite dreadful. How on earth would she carry on her life without him? To add to the strains on the family, in early 1861, Victoria's mother died. Although they had never been close, the Queen was devastated. Prince Albert wrote, She is greatly upset and feels her whole childhood rush back once more upon her memory with the most vivid force. And with those recollections come back the thought of many a sad hour. I do not want to feel better. I love to dwell on her and not to be roused out of my grief. In an orgy of despair, Victoria was reluctant to acknowledge Albert's ill health. Writing to daughter Vicky, Victoria spelt out her frustration. Dear Papa never allows he is any better or will try to get over it, but makes such a miserable face that people always think he's very ill. Despite his wife's criticisms and feeling desperately sick, Albert was determined to realize his vision for the children and arranged another dynastic marriage between Bertie, the first in line to the throne, and Princess Alexandra of Denmark. Once again, a wholesome public image mattered. It was crucial the marriage was passed off as a love match, not a political alliance. The heir to the throne had to appear to have a chaste life. But in the summer of 1861, Bertie started training with the Grenadier Guards in Dublin. His fellow officers, with whom he became very chummy, uh, managed or arranged one night for a sort of 
camp follower of the regiment, a lady called Nellie Clifton, to uh, join Bertie in his bed. And so on three occasions, Bertie slept with, um, lost his virginity with Nellie Clifton. And then, of course, eventually the story started to trickle out. And Albert heard about it. And he wrote Bertie the most terrible letter, sort of hysterical, completely overwrought, in which he says that he foresees for his son this future of kind of paternity suits and, you know, the terrible slide into total um, evil and, you know, low moral character. To thrust yourself into the hands of one of the most abject of the human species, to be by her initiated in the sacred mysteries of creation, which ought to remain shrouded in holy awe until touched by pure and undefiled hands. He was terrified that she might go to the papers, to the courts, that she might end up pregnant and make all kinds of financial and other demands. But I think this was an extreme reaction to what he'd seen with his own father and brother's behaviour. So it was tough on Bertie because what should have been pretty much brushed under the carpet uh, turned into this enormous issue and Albert the minute he heard was pacing up and down night after night, not sleeping, worrying, and he literally wore himself into a frazzle about this one transgression of Bertie's. To Albert, Bertie's fall was not only a threat to his dynastic marriage, but to the monarchy itself. You must not, you dare not be lost. The consequences for this country and for the world at large would be too dreadful. What I think we can say for certain is that Bertie's misdemeanor upset Albert in an utterly visceral way. It really got in among him and he was deeply, deeply upset. And you can tell this by the anguish letter that he wrote to Bertie, more or less saying, you know, it, this, isn't, this isn't just a, a little sin, it's, it's something which could shake the throne. The plan for perfect children had failed and the dynastic dream was at stake. Victoria went on the defensive Wicked wretches had led our poor innocent boy into a scrape. The sickly Albert travelled to Cambridge to meet his son and make him understand the disgrace he had brought on himself and his family and also the urgent need to get married. Albert went down to Cambridge to have it out with Bertie about his fall and they went for a long private walk in the rain and they had this long conversation. We don't know what, the, what, what they said, but we do know that Albert came back absolutely wet through and that Bertie thought that he had been forgiven. So in a way, it's sort of a, 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 a you know, it's, it's a resolution of the conflict. But it was a cold and wet winter day. After the long walk with his son, Albert was racked with pain in his legs. Over the next few weeks, his symptoms worsened. Albert wrote to his daughter, Vicky. I am at a very low ebb. Much worry and great sorrow, about which I beg you not to ask questions, have robbed me of sleep during the past fortnight. I personally believe, having done the research, that Albert did have a long-standing gastric problem that was wrongly diagnosed as typhoid fever. I don't believe he died of typhoid fever. I believe he died of a flare-up of probably Crohn's disease, which goes into periods of remission and then flares up during times of extreme stress. And in 1861, he'd had to deal with a whole chain of stressful things happening which precipitated a final decline, aggravated then by uh, contracting a chill and a fever, and his body just packed up on him. He wore himself out. In mid-December, when Albert grew worse, Bertie was ordered home to see his ailing father. 
Albert died the following day, aged only 42. For Victoria, the loss of the man on whom she had come to utterly depend could not have been more devastating. He was my father, my protector, my guide and advisor in all and everything. My mother, I might say, as well as my husband. I suppose no one ever was so completely altered and changed in every way as I was by dearest Papa's blessed influence. Queen Victoria's overbearing grief would dominate the royal household and the nation for decades. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.